everyone, it's Sarah here from the EMJ and welcome to the EMJ podcast for February 2022. As I said, it's Sarah here and I've been joined by my colleague. Hello, here it's Rick Buddy. And we've got a fantastic selection of papers for you this month. So I'm going to start with the first paper and then we're going to alternate and work our way through this month's selection. So the first paper I'm going to talk about is the hyperbaric oxygen as an adjuvant treatment for patients with COVID-19 severe hypoxemia, a randomised control trial. So this paper has quite understandably been in the media and and you may have seen it. And essentially this study, which is a multi-centred randomised control trial down in South America, so um, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, was done last year and it was looking at the role of hyperbaric oxygen with patients uh, for the treatment of their COVID-19. So essentially they aimed to, over the period between July to November 2020, with patients look at seeing if this hyperbaric oxygen would improve oxygenation of patients. Now, one of the caveats, and I think it's important with this paper, is that they stopped the um, study early with an interim analysis halfway through. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about that. But the crux of it was they had 40 people, 20 in each group. So 20 that did receive hyperbaric oxygen and 20 that didn't. Most of the average age was 55. And understandably, they presented with the sort of typical symptoms of COVID that we were having back then and still now. So, you know, shortness of breath, fever, sore throat. And with these patients, they often were having sort of a baseline oxygenation of 85% of saturations. And that was on oxygen. And the challenge of that, as I'm sure we all know, Rick and I, like our listeners, is that actually, you know, where do you go next for your oxygenation? So essentially, patients went through um, hyperbaric oxygen treatment, and on average, they went through six sessions. So there was the hyperbaric group that went through the six, about six sessions, and then the non-hyperbaric group. And what they found was that overall, those that had the hyperbaric oxygen recovered sooner, um, and they needed, uh, on average, three days less of um, treatment overall than the non-hyperbaric group. And I think, you know, that's really interesting that that finding came out and a very different approach to the treatment of COVID-19 severe hypoxemia. What was interesting, though, there was no significance on the respiratory distress element of it, mechanical ventilation days or um, death within 30 days of admission. So whilst it helped it and got people down off their oxygen a lot quicker, it overall didn't change some of those, those other important factors. I don't know whether you wanted to sort of jump in here, Rick, and and share your thoughts on this paper. Well, I found it really interesting because so nice to see a randomised control trial published in the EMJ and really nice to see such overwhelmingly positive findings for the primary outcome. It was terminated early because of overwhelming evidence of success. So that's really impressive. And hopefully this gives us an extra treatment in our armory for patients with severe COVID-19 and refractory hypoxia. The biggest challenge I could see is the practicality of transferring patients to hyperbaric oxygen units, the availability of hyperbaric oxygen units. So that might potentially limit the impact of the findings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we were just chatting before this, weren't we? We were saying, where's our nearest hyperbaric oxygen location? And I think as well with this challenge, particularly with this paper, and I suggest that our listeners go and read it, is that actually you have to be able to sit up 
and be off oxygen to get into the hyperbaric chamber for at least five minutes. So that may preclude some of our patients with this. But I think really interesting, and also I think what's really important, not only is this a randomised control trial, Rick, but it's actually from South America, which I think it's really important that we're including good quality research from other parts of the world. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. So very nice trial to see. Shall I take you through the second paper that we've got on our list? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a discrete choice experiment. And I guess it links very nicely with some of the themes that uh, were covered in the RCT, really, uh, because this is looking at patients who might need intensive care and the decision to use scarce intensive care beds for patients with severe COVID-19. So the authors were from the US and they ran a discrete choice experiment. So I'll tell you what that is in a moment. They had a sample of 2,000 people from the general public in the US. And uh, in this discrete choice experiment, they were basically trying to elicit the public's preferences about what factors we should take into account when we assign scarce ICU resources to patients. We all know that's quite topical because, especially in the US, we've heard stories of ICU beds being rationed because of the demands of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, one way of eliciting those preferences would just be to ask people what factors should be taken into account, but that doesn't necessarily always get you the information that you want. So the discrete choice experiment takes quite an elaborate approach to that. Basically, you give a number of scenarios to the participants and you have a number of factors that vary in those scenarios. So in this case, there were four different scenarios given. Uh, and they varied certain things. So they varied the age of the patients, the gender of the patients. They varied whether they had an Alzheimer's type illness, and they varied the probability of survival that was given to the participants. And then when they got the results, they could see based on how uh, the public assigned priorities to the different patients in these scenarios, they could see what factors were driving their decisions. And the findings I think were quite interesting overwhelmingly the probability of survival was the most influential factor in determining the public's perception about whether we should allocate an ICU bed to a patient. So higher probability of survival is um, more likely to get you that ICU bed in the public's perception. And that's, I guess, the key finding. There were one or two other interesting things as well. The public had a slight preference for females to get the beds. So if you had very similar patients who were male and female, the public would in general be indifferent about the ICU bed being allocated to either patient if the female had a 10% smaller chance of survival than the male. And similarly with Alzheimer's-like diseases, if you had patients that were exactly the same, um, the public would be indifferent if someone with Alzheimer's had a 14% greater chance of survival than someone without. That's where you'd reach the point of indifference. So it's really interesting to see. Of course, that's only one factor in how we might decide to allocate an ICU bed, but it's a really interesting one from the public. Sarah, what, what do you think about that? I think it's a bit surprising, if I'm honest. I was just thinking, you know, obviously survival is important, but I think those slight nuances about the gender differences and the perception of neurodegenerative sort of type diseases, you know, or ageing diseases, let's say, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's and things, 
that that uh, point around you know actually they'd prefer to give it to a woman than a man i'd really love to unpick that because i think that's you know very topical around sort of gender and and gender roles within society it would be lovely to know what the uk's perception would be in comparison to that of the us i'm hoping somebody out there is doing that research yeah it would really be interesting to see what the uk perception is absolutely well, sticking with the theme, though, yeah. of allocating scarce resources and making difficult decisions about patient uh, treatment, you've taken on the paper looking at decisions to limit treatment in the ED. Yeah, so quite an interesting paper, a systematic review of the factors influencing decisions to limit treatment in the emergency department. So in typical systematic review fashion, you know, all of the standard sort of things that you'd expect have been done. And what they're essentially trying to understand is the factors that influence decisions to limit treatment in the emergency department. So long comprehensive search up until 2016 um, was when the papers were included and overall 10 studies were included. Of those 10 studies, uh, none of them were UK-based, and I think that's really an interesting point. Uh, Some were from France, Morocco, Australia, and Spain. But overall, the factors that were found to influence treatment could be sort of divided into a couple of, you know, overall arching themes. So things like uh, patient and disease factors, so um, age was an influencing factor, chronic disease, functional limitation, patient and family wishes, comorbidity, quality of life, and those sort of things. We've got hospital factors, so your, what your colleagues thought, um, and resource availability. And then there was the sort of non-patient um, healthcare factors, so some of the moral, ethical, social and cost factors. I think this is a hugely complex topic, and I think you know it relates quite well to the, to the previous paper and, and is quite challenging. And I think overall, lots of these themes and lots of these things that came up, you know, and uh, it's mentioned in the paper, leave us with some ethical and some perhaps moral conundrums. What is, of course, difficult is that none of these studies have been done in the UK. So what we don't know is if this is cultural to us in the UK. But I think, you know, I think it leads us open nicely to somebody out there hopefully going to explore this a little further within the UK EDs. I'd be interested to see what you feel, Rick. Yeah, I totally agree. The fact that we didn't see any UK evidence really highlights that this is a very important research question for us to answer. And very topical because we've seen a lot of publicity in the last decade or so around things like the Liverpool Care Pathway. There was lots of concern about uh, do not attempt resuscitation decisions during the COVID-19 pandemic, certainly in the first wave. So I certainly think it piques the public interest and very relevant to our practice. So it's very ripe for a a research project to come along and answer some of those questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to move on now, slight sideline, but to perhaps one of Rick's favourite topics, sort of cardiac arrest and chest pain and things like that. But we've got a few papers now that we're going to talk about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and cardiac arrest due to other things. But firstly, we're going to start with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and score validation. So over to you, Rick. Yeah, so I've taken a look at a really nice study from Japan by Kaita Shibahashi and colleagues, and they've done a retrospective analysis using um, a kind of registry that they've got of patients who had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest over a little over a year in 2012 to 2013. And they looked at patients who had suffered an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and they collected the data 
to validate two scores. So there's an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest score and there is a cardiac arrest hospital prognosis score. And they looked at those two. They've previously been derived and this study is seeking to validate them. So they included 2,428 patients in the analysis and they looked to see if those two scores could predict the primary outcome of unfavorable neurological outcome at one month. I really like one detail of the approach to this study. So they're validating these prediction models, which are designed to predict prognosis, but they give you a probability of survival at the end. Uh, So one of the things that's really important is not just to look at accuracy, so sensitivity, specificity, your rock curve, but also to look at calibration. So there's two things. There's discrimination, which is that diagnostic accuracy, and calibration. And what calibration means is if the score tells you that there's a 10% probability of survival, how likely is it that it really is 10%? How accurate is that prediction? And how accurate is it if it says 90%? And they looked at these scores, they, they simplified them a little bit as well, because they're quite complicated scores involving complex equations, and they validated them in both their original and their simplified forms. And you could see that on, on the whole, the diagnostic accuracy was all right, the calibration looked pretty good. The crux of it, though, is how they might drive your decisions. Uh, and really, all of these scores had very, very low sensitivity, but high specificity, the exception or the best, the best sensitivity that we saw was with the simplified cardiac arrest hospital prognosis score, which had a sensitivity of 15% to get a specificity of 99% to predict unfavorable outcome. And the authors suggest that we could use that to identify patients in whom further resuscitation attempts might be futile because it has high specificity for unfavorable outcome. And that really poses quite an interesting ethical question, really. These are scores that we would use in the emergency department. You require some lab measures, like you know, you mean your creatinine, your lactate, for example, and you need a uh, computer to work out the outcome of the, of the prediction model. The question really is, could you see that being used? Could you say, well, actually, this patient maybe is a, you know, I don't know, it might be a fairly young patient, maybe it's coming in after a cardiac arrest, you've resuscitated them, they may be fairly stable, but the cardiac arrest score says that they've got a, a futile prognosis. Would we really use it to pull out? Or perhaps these scores are more of academic interest to guide future research. Could you see a score like this being used to guide futility decisions, Sarah? I, I think scores are useful, but I think it's you know clinical gestalt, clinical knowledge. And I'm always a bit wary about using scores for such a controversial and high risk area such as you know around should you start and should you stop i think it should be used to inform but not be the definitive decision and i think that should come down to clinical experience and clinical judgment but i think it can help and we know there's other scores for example you know i think about um, is it the the possum score or the p possum score that they use for you know mortality prediction in theater for example for emergency theaters and going with abdominal stuff you know that's really helpful and i know our surgical colleagues use that but that isn't the only decision they use in in guiding whether you know patients should or shouldn't have treatment but i think again i think it's informative but shouldn't be the be all and end all yeah i like that approach too and you know here we see the importance of them looking at calibration as well because actually even if you don't use it to inform a sort of categorical decision we proceed or we don't proceed simply informing the relatives of the probability of survival might be helpful and it links as well to the papers that we've already looked at on patient preferences and 
treatment limitation decisions. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think moving on from your paper to my paper, looking at some of the, the causes of cardiac arrest, again, sort of these, this, that particular score may be helpful as well. What I'll probably do is move on to my next paper, which is looking around out-of-hospital cardiac arrest due to hanging, a retrospective analysis, and this is by Jake Turner. So this is looking at hangings that caused an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest um, within the West Midlands Ambulance Service between January 2013 to June 2018. And as I'm sure our audience are aware, you know, one of the most prevalent methods of suicide worldwide, sadly, is that of hanging. And essentially, they looked through their database and extracted the data and tried to understand the and report the characteristics, the treatment and the outcomes um, from cardiac arrest secondary to hanging. So within this sort of time, they had 189 cases, 95 of those patients were conveyed to hospital, and only four of these patients survived to discharge out of those 189 cases. And I think what's really interesting, 40 patients were conveyed even though they had no spontaneous circulation, they were dead on scene, 40 of them were still brought into hospital for whatever needed to happen. What's really interesting about this is just some of the little things that I, I, that I picked out about this paper. So of these hangings, most of them, so around 82% of them were, their initial rhythm was asystole, followed by PEA, but quite a few of them, so three of them, which is literally a few, were in VF. So I think the important thing there really is, is just remembering just because they've come in with a hanging, they can have, you know, your shockable rhythms as well. So it's worth mentioning about that. And the ventilation. So all of those that were tried to be ventilated, be it using a ET tube or a supraglottic airway device, the success rate of those first attempts of the ventilation aspect was similar to other reported um, cardiac arrest papers. So I think that's really important to bear in mind. Um, and why I picked those two things out, I think those are, you know, we know going back to the basics that, you know, good CPR, good identification of, you know, shockable rhythms and good airway management can help improve the outcomes for cardiac arrest. So it's really important. But I think ultimately this paper shows what we probably already know is that unfortunately with hangings, your outcome of surviving is very, very poor because of the, often the mechanism used is asphyxiation. Yeah, it's very interesting to see the findings presented because it's quite hard to get a decent amount of data. I think they had to run this over analysis over quite a few years to get a decent number of patients. Yeah. And that makes it very valuable because we don't have series this large of patients with that presentation. Absolutely. And I think it's an important topic that we need to understand. You know, it's hugely emotive for obvious reasons. And I think, you know, we just need to be, you know, for those patients that we see, we just need to optimise that we're thinking about those things, that we're optimising ventilation if that's appropriate, and that we can have shockable rhythms. And it's just worth thinking that, you know, we just need to be, remember, not expecting an asystole or a PEA. Um, so we just always need to be maximising our cardiac arrest management, really. And that leads on nicely to your cardiac arrest paper, doesn't it? Yeah, sticking with the theme of cardiac arrest in trauma, this is an analysis from Queensland in Australia, where Tan Doan and colleagues have looked at a series of 2,394 patients with cardiac arrest who were pronounced dead on arrival following trauma 
1,497 who received resuscitation attempts from paramedics. And that includes all trauma, blunts, penetrating, or burn injuries. And we can see what they looked at here is survival rates. And then they did a really nice and interesting multivariable analysis to see what factors were associated with survival to six months. So the most common uh, mechanisms in patients who were pronounced dead on arrival were motor vehicle crash and gunshot wound. And the most common presentations for the patients who were, had an attempted resuscitation were motor vehicle collision and motorcycle accidents. The survival to six months was actually quite good among the patients who had attempted resuscitation at 9.8%. So, you know, we often think of traumatic cardiac arrest as being a very, very bleak situation with very poor survival. But actually this case series or retrospective analysis of a large number of patients suggested actually there is a relatively reasonable survival rate for these patients on the whole. And the multivariable analysis was quite interesting. One of the highlights was that advanced airway management was associated with increased survival in these patients. Now that's really important because you may well be familiar with the Airways 2 trial that was published uh, not long ago from Jonathan Benger and colleagues, which showed no benefits with advanced airway management in patients with an atraumatic cardiac arrest or out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in the UK in a large study. So the issue of advanced airway management in cardiac arrest has been contentious. That was a randomized controlled trial. This is a retrospective study. We should trust the findings of an RCT more than a retrospective study. But here we've got a signal that advanced airway management might just be of benefit for patients with traumatic cardiac arrest. And in addition, intravenous access was associated with increased survival and a high acuity uh, response unit responding to the cardiac arrest was also associated with increased survival, which is heartening to see because that's what we'd like to see that, you know, when we're, when we're sending those highly experienced people out, that actually there is a survival benefit. So interesting paper tells us a bit about, uh, improves our understanding about traumatic cardiac arrest and perhaps directs us to some future research questions around advanced airway management. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see how to get that trial done, looking at uh, advanced airway management in a in traumatic cardiac arrest. But um, if somebody's keen to do it, please do it. We'd love to know. And that just leads on to our last themed paper around um, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And this is looking at the location of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and an awareness of the time interval. So this was a nationwide observational study done within South Korea by um, Kim et al., and essentially, they looked retrospectively back through their phenomenal cardiac arrest database that they keep between 2013 and 2017. They were looking at two things, really, looking at time to collapse and the frequency of bystander CPR. So essentially, what they were looking at is all the cardiac arrests that were done, not witnessed by paramedics um, and in sort of public places or homes or uh, nursing care facilities. So this left them with, after they'd removed everything, 30,373 eligible out-of-hospital cardiac arrests in that time period. And what they were looking at was trying to determine the time. So they were aiming for times of less than four minutes between when a call went out for EMS or if they had the timing as well of when the CPR was started. Not surprisingly, or surprisingly perhaps, 
what was really interesting was looking at the those that had cardiac arrests in nursing facilities or private housing often had a delayed time to EMS being called and bystander CPR being started versus those in a public place. And looking to survival to discharge, those that were in a public place um, had a higher chance of surviving to discharge. So just uh, just to give you an idea, so there were 2015 patients who had a out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in a public place and about 27% of those survived to discharge um, with 20% of those, so about 1,500 of those having a good neurological outcome versus in private housing, the survival to discharge dropped to 9% and then in, in nursing facilities that dropped to 2% which is really interesting to look at and perhaps surprising, not surprising to the UK or or to the rest of the world. But the bottom line really is here is that essentially those in public places often do better and are more likely in this uh, South Korean population to do better in public places. You're more likely to have your bystander CPR started and you're more likely to survive to discharge. However, in private residences or in nursing facilities, your outcome is significantly poor and I was just interested to see what your thoughts were about that yeah to some extent I guess you know if you've got lots of people around they might find you quicker and you might get a quicker response but there's certainly an element of education needed here perhaps you know focus on education and nursing homes and the public uh, for people who have cardiac arrests within in private residences to make sure that we do optimize those response times because it is pretty critical obviously for survival rates yeah, obviously. And there is perhaps, um, you know, the nursing home resident survival may be appropriately that low because actually we don't know what the, the cohort of patients are within that facility. So that may not be surprising. I guess it's the private residences that we perhaps don't know about. But as you said, hitting the nail on the head there, Rick, it's about education. And that's what this paper suggested with, within that sort of South Korean population. Great. So let's move on to the next interesting paper. And this is very topical for us in the middle of the pandemic. It's about PPE and adherence to protection measures for staff in the COVID-19 pandemic. So really nice uh, evaluation here by Louise Smith and colleagues from London. And this was based in June 2020, so the end of the first wave of the pandemic. And they did an online survey of 1,035 UK healthcare professionals and asked them essentially about their adherence to infection prevention and control measures for uh, COVID-19 when they were at work. What they found was quite interesting. Only 80% of people uh, adhered to PPE guidelines at the time. Only 67.8% adhered to hand hygiene guidelines and 74.7% adhered to guidance about coming into close contact with patients. So training seemed to improve uh, adherence, which is, is heartening to know. But I guess the bottom line there is that we really need to reinforce those messages, especially with NHS sickness rates being quite so high as they are right now with the Omicron variant coming along. So very topical uh, and a very, very timely reminder of the need to be right on on top of our game with infection control measures. Yeah, absolutely. I think nothing really needs to be said there. We just need to wash our hands, wear our PPE appropriately and just be as safe as we can. 
So the last two papers are going to be paired together and um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the paper which is titled Teach Back of Discharge Instructions in the Emergency Department, a Pre-Post Pilot Evaluation. And essentially this is looking at how we give discharge instructions to patients and they came up with a teach back methodology which essentially is if Rick, for example, was my relative, the relative or the patient, I would tell him you need to go home with all these discharge instructions and then I would get him to tell me it back to me just to make sure that he understood what I've told him for his discharge instructions. So this study was done in the Netherlands in a Dutch hospital in one setting and essentially they were looking at uh, the primary outcome was looking at with this methodology of teaching people their discharge instructions, looking at uh, primary outcomes of revisits within seven days and then eight to 30 days was the secondary outcome post-discharge, seeing if they came back. And then looking at those sort of older adults as well, looking at, you know, their retention of instructions and self-management and things. If you use this teach back method, essentially you get less revisits within seven days and within eight to 30 days. And Overall, these patients or the relatives that had the teach back instructions felt much more confident and were less likely to return and really grasped their instructions. What's really interesting out of this study of these 648 patients is that in teach back, the average time to give the instructions was five minutes. In standard care, the average time was seven minutes, so it was actually longer. And also for those that had the standard discharge, a third of them couldn't remember anything what had been told to them when they were called up the following day. So I think really interesting methods. I'd really like some work to be done in different centres looking at this because actually, given how pressured health services are around the world, it's really important that we give clear, good discharge instructions to our patients and their carers and their relatives and that they understand, you know, what it is we would be worried about in the emergency department. Um, what do you think about this, Rick? Well, I find it really convincing. Absolutely fascinating. Definitely an intervention that we ought to be looking at. And you know what? This links so nicely with the last paper that I, I've looked at, which is on patient experience after they presented to the ED with hyperglycemia. So uh, in this last study, um, we have a qualitative evaluation. So it's quite nice to see some qualitative methods by Justin Yan and colleagues from London, Ontario in Canada. And they uh, interviewed the 22 participants who'd been to the ED with hyperglycemia at least once, uh, interviewed them, picked out the themes and have reported them to us and told us that what the patients were telling us about what was important from their experiences were, number one, communication of discharge instructions. So that's where it links very nicely with your paper. And in particular, one of the things that they mentioned was that sometimes they're a bit too poorly to take everything in. And so they really liked it when they were given a written supplement of the discharge instructions. So teach back, uh, written instructions, these things are going to help patients to retain the information that we give to them. And that's really important for us to take on board. There were also a number of psychosocial issues that affected their ongoing care. This is often quite specific to the healthcare system. Some unfortunate concerns about the financial costs of drugs and medical supplies that were barriers to ongoing care relating to medical insurance. Some really interesting experiences around shame and guilt, feeling that you know their, their poor control of diabetes was their fault, um, for example, uh, and a stigma associated with the diabetes and hyperglycemia affecting their mental health. So really important that we recognise that, that, the, these, that patients 
feel that way when they present to us with hyperglycemia and we try and reassure them uh, that they don't feel the shame and the guilt associated with those attendances and we do what we can to make sure we get on top of their condition for them uh, and follow up. So they also would value things like a telephone call after discharge, which again links to that teach back paper uh, and retention of information, perhaps just alluding to the fact that, you know, that it's hard for people to take everything in when they're in the emergency department. And then lastly, close to your heart, Sarah, there were some things around transition from people pediatric to adult care which it doesn't always go smoothly and I, I think you know in, um, probably in all of our experiences in the emergency departments treating young people who've just made that transition from pediatric to adult care it can be a very difficult time so one for us to pay attention to. Absolutely and I think uh, diabetes and you know my experience in the emergency department is it can be challenging and uh, you know people are poorly and we need to think about better ways to communicate and check on patients that we're particularly worried about. Well that brings us uh, to the end of our February 2022 summary of the journal and what's coming out this month. Um, I'd like to thank Rick and I'd like to thank you all for listening and hopefully we'll see you soon and you'll hear from us soon. Thanks very much. Take care.